Amen. Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the 13th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, where we will be reading verses 1 through 5. That is Luke 13, verses 1 through 5, and you can find that passage on page 1024 in your pew Bibles. Well, beloved, I feel like I'm going to state the obvious, but I think we would all agree that the last few years have undoubtedly been very different for most, or dare I suggest, for all of us. With a global pandemic, we've all been forced to reconsider the way our ordinary and average lives are called the function in this fallen world. Severe illness has affected all of our lives in one way or another. It's undoubtedly added yet another complexity to already difficult lives. We're forced to sit back and think about what will be next. We've all been experiencing times of difficulty as these frail bodies have become wearied by our own illnesses or by illnesses and those we love. And it seems that this fallen world spirals at times, gathering often more steam than friction. I say all that to say we know something about Suffering on this side of glory, don't we? Of course we do. And yes, even Christians have been and certainly do experience times of suffering, times of difficulty, even times of discouragement. It's reality. It's one we all live Well, I guess my question then is, how are we to deal with that reality, considering the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What are we to do with our discouragement? Should we just cover it up? That's been done, right? We just... Pretend that it's not real? Holding on to the hope that it too will pass eventually? I thought perhaps we could all use a reminder of the way in which Scripture speaks to our reactions to these difficult things. And beloved, as I thought through this this week, as hard as it may be to believe... We are now already just beginning our 22nd year into a new century. We are now in our second year of yet another decade in this century. In this past week, I was reminiscing about how much was made of the last decade as it began back towards the end of 2009. If you spent any time at all back then watching or reading the news, you undoubtedly will remember there seemed to be a lot of preoccupation about the ending of the first decade of the millennium and starting brand new, starting afresh with the new one, the one we just lived through. 
The first 10 years were difficult ones to say the least. Do you remember? In that first decade, we saw many awful, horrific, even catastrophic failures in the world. In that first decade, we saw out-of-control wildfires. We saw killer tsunamis. We saw hurricanes and, and earthquakes that absolutely wreaked havoc worldwide, causing not just simply material damage, but the loss of much precious life. It was a decade where the confidence of the average United States citizen was absolutely rocked as a terrorist organization attacked us on our own soil through an unforgettable and even despicable act of cowardice. It was a decade where we as a country had to make the sacrifice and the decision to go to war to protect our collective interest, the interest of freedom in the world. It was a decade in which we witnessed school children taking up arms in the senseless murders of their classmates. Horror after horror appeared on our television screens night after night as fallen people murdered, got sick, died, succumbed to disasters brought on by violent outbreaks of weather, and that was just the beginning. There were, and in fact still are, those atrocities that continue daily on a much more socially accepted note that the news usually completely omits from its nightly reports. Things like the murder of the unborn continuing to rise at a staggering rate over even the last 10 years. Now 20. Wickedness that was once considered taboo even in the most liberal of circles has now found its way into popular acceptance. While the church has not only largely remained silent, but has even been so brazen as to join in, nodding our approval to things like same-sex marriage, ordination of homosexuals to the pulpits of so many of the churches of Almighty God throughout this world. It was a terrible decade in many respects. And of course, that first decade then ended with the harsh reality of a monumental financial collapse and a subsequent recession that left countless numbers of people without work or even the prospect of having the means to support themselves or their families. We all either lost or knew people who lost retirement accounts that were never supposed to suffer losses, money that was supposed to support us financially for the rest of our years here on earth was gone. Many were forced to go back into an already saturated labor force, which at the time was unable to support the vast numbers of of people seeking means from it for their lives. Do you remember continually hearing of these things? Because we we tend to get caught up in the present and we forget about what's gone before. This wasn't that long ago. It's been since I've been the minister here. Not only at the end of a particularly wearying decade, we hear it every single day of every single month of every single year. And if we're not careful, we can and we often do begin to react wrongly. I'm going to confess to you seeing this sin in my own life. 
right? We, we begin to grumble. We begin to complain just a little bit. We can justify a little bit of grumbling, right? A little bit of gossip, a little bit of complaining. We look at the hand that we have been handed and we decide that this next year or this next decade, it's going to be one where we're going to spend a little more of our time working towards what we think we really deserve. We decide that we do not like what we've been given, and so we vow that we will get justice in the year to come. We make things like New Year's resolutions to help us on the way as motivators. All the while, we ignorantly shake puny fists at a sovereign God who we certainly hope will do a little bit better job paying attention and giving us what we're so certain we deserve in the year to come. Because we deserve better, right? We deserve better than this. We expect God to make life easier, not more difficult. We expect God to live under our tiny definition of fairness. Beloved, can you relate to what I'm saying? Or am I alone in this? We know I'm not. This is often our mentality, and understand, I'm not pointing my finger this morning out there at the world and saying, this is what they do. I'm suggesting that these things happen much, much closer to home, beloved. I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ. Why do we do it? Why is it that we think that we've ever been given something like injustice from the hand of a perfectly just, perfectly sovereign, perfectly provident God? Why is it that we seem to be able to limit the cause of our unhappiness, our discontent, to a couple of small, even respectable sins that if I just somehow conquered in the next two to three months, I might even make God my debtor? Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, I think there are a couple of reasons that we do it. First, we do it because we often ask ourselves the wrong questions when faced with what we consider to be inexplicable, right? If something's inexplicable, inexplicable, we ask the wrong questions. In our effort to to get to work being better, we miss not only the fundamental cause of all of the problems, but we also miss the fundamental solution to them as well. Secondly, I think we have a severe misunderstanding of the difference between grace and justice And which one of those two things we are supposed to stand in awe of is truly amazing. We often get the role of those two things backwards. We have a tendency to stand amazed at justice when we see it, and yet somehow remain entirely unaffected by grace. Going so far that we feel that grace is even something that we ought to expect. Jesus was faced with a very similar situation while sitting with his disciples and the crowds that had gathered around him. And it's my hope this morning that his answer to what essentially was the wrong question being asked will not only wake us in the church from our heavy-eyed slumber, but that it would turn us to what is truly our only comfort, our only source of hope in both life and in death, and of course that is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'd like you to follow along with me as I read again from the gospel according to Luke chapter 13, reading verses 1 through 5. Hear now the word of our Lord. 
there were present at that season some who told him, that is Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Because they suffered such things. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word this morning. We pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds of all of those things that distract us. We pray, Father, that we would hear your word with ears that hear and eyes that see, that hearing it, we might be transformed by it for your glory. Comfort us as your people, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus is presumably speaking here to the multitude that had gathered around him to come, that were flocking to him to come and to hear this new radical teacher's new teaching. Most commentators tend to agree that precious little is truly known about these two historical incidents that are here brought before the Lord Jesus Christ or have been here at the very least made known to him. John Calvin seems to think that the first related incident was carried out against the Samaritans, who as we saw just last week, had left the pure practice of worship according to the holy law of God and had somehow mingled their own vain ideas with it. A dangerous practice to be sure. The Jewish people would have readily condemned such a thing as that and they would have seen their blood being spilled as the direct result of their heinous sin and probably would have even been a little bit self-congratulatory towards their own supposed cleanliness in the eyes of the law. However, we see that in his perfect providence, this example is not set up here by our Lord for the congratulations of the so-called righteous. That, in fact, I'm going to tell you, we never see in Christ's conversations with the leaders of the church. But to show the overwhelming and the far-reaching extent of sin, And the fact that it was present indeed even especially in the midst of the so-called clean folks. And Jesus repeats the second example, which again according to Calvin is believed to have happened, although not recorded for us in any reputable historic writing, to the very people of God. That is, this one happened to the Jewish people. Eighteen so-called innocents wiped out in an instant by a tower that happened to fall where they were unfortunately standing nearby. Innocent people who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. In both cases, we can see that the question that arose in the minds of the people can be assumed to be one and the same. 
Jesus addresses it by insinuating the reason behind their telling him of these things taking place. And beloved, I want to tell you, we could learn much from the way in which he responds to their questions. The content of both questions is seen in his repeating of the answer that the people had apparently come up with for what again was essentially the wrong question. And in doing so, he forces us to come to grips with the seriousness of our sin. Look at what Jesus says to them. Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? And then again, are those 18 who the tower fell on and killed, do you think they were worse sinners than every other man that lives in Jerusalem? Again, I think we begin to see here in Jesus summing up their answer exactly what their question was. The question was something like, why did these Galileans have their blood spilled while worshiping God? We'll break it down a little farther. Why would God ever let that happen? And their apparent answer to what was the wrong question was, well, they must have deserved it. Because they had transgressed the laws of their fathers in ways that we, of course, have not. That's why. They've mingled their worship with their own vain ideas, and so they've suffered the consequences of such foolishness by the giving of their very lives for their fathers. It had to be something similar with the tower, right? Again, there is some strain of truth here, but you must see where it is that they fundamentally err in their question. Were the deaths of these Galileans, or even of those who died, having been crushed by this random tower in Siloam, were they the results of sin? Beloved, absolutely, in one sense, they were. Right? We live in a fallen world and we have ever since our first parents fell in the garden all of those years ago. And what was the result of that fall? The result was death. Do you remember what it says in Genesis? On the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That was the condition of breaking the law of of God, death. We still see it now. There's death all around us as we live out our days in a world that has fallen, in a world that is fading away, a world, in fact, that is decaying, dying, because it is a world that is temporary, and it is a world that is plagued by sin and its curse. The wages of sin are death. We are surrounded by death in this life as a direct result of sin. Make no mistake. That much is certainly true. These people gathered here around Jesus Christ were absolutely right to assume that there was a direct tie between the tragic deaths of the people and sin. So, the question remains, if that much is true, 
then where on earth do they err in their question? If they are right to make the tie between sin and death, where in fact are they wrong? Beloved, I want to tell you, I think we certainly understand where their question arises from. Do we not? We have only to look at our own hearts to understand where this question naturally arises from. I routinely see it in my own heart as I watch the news. We seem to have this need for explaining away the justice of Almighty God. We see something like a tragedy strike and we begin to search for a reason to quiet that protest that begins to rage in our flesh. Do you know what I'm talking about? Beloved, if you've ever experienced real tragedy on a personal level, and you understand that your flesh is screaming continually against God, and you're honest with yourself about it, then I trust that you do know. We see hurt and pain, and it's close to home, and we begin to hear the raging of our flesh with questions like, Hey, where is God in all of this? Where is God in the premature death of your parents? Where is God in your failed marriage? Where is God in these situations? Where is God? 18 people minding their own business, walking along, and just like that, their lives are ended. Why would God let that happen to innocent people minding their own? They weren't blaspheming. They were not attacking the people of God. Some of them were worshiping Almighty God and they were savagely murdered. Why? Why? Why would God do that? Why would He allow that? Why would God let this happen to me? What did I do to deserve this kind of pain, this kind of real heartache? Why would God take my loved one from me? Why would he take my parents or my spouse or my children? Why? So we do what the people around Jesus did. And letting our emotions take precedence over the truth of God's word, we ask the wrong questions and then we vainly try to make everything fit. We try to reconcile our theology with our feelings and hopefully we can bring everything into at least some kind of workable harmony. And it's what leads us to ask the wrong questions. You see, the only question that we can ask that can lead to the comfort of our souls is not what did this or that person do to force God to take him or her from us prematurely. That question only leads to wild-eyed, often self-righteous speculation on our part. That's what Job's so-called comforters did. They had to find out what it was that Job did to so upset God if they were ever going to be able to really help Job get his life back on track. So they asked the wrong questions and they simply never came close to any real comfort with the answers they received or to doing any real comforting. Beloved, it's what the world does even now as they collectively scratch their heads together to make sure that the next 10 years, the next 50 years, the next 100 years, we have more gain, less pain, more happiness, less sorrow. 
less trouble, less problems. However, in the end, they find that if they ask the wrong question, the answer, no matter how profound it sounds or appears to be, will not ever bring anything like lasting comfort. What about the church of Jesus Christ? Beloved, what is the right question? The question is not, what did they do to deserve what they received? That question rises in our hearts when we wrongly stand amazed at God's justice. It's the wrong question. The right question is knowing everything I know about myself. Knowing everything I know about my own heart. Why did that tower not fall on me? Knowing my own heart, why was it not my blood that was mingled with the blood of the sacrifice as I dared to feign to worship? Knowing the truth about my own standing with the holy law of God, why is it not me that faces the tragedy of death this day or every single day of my life? This is exactly what Jesus brings home to this crowd when he answers both questions with the exact same answer. Look at what he says to them. He answers the question. I tell you, no, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You too will die. You see what he's saying. They misunderstood the extent of their own sin and its effects. And so they came to the place where they were unmoved by the grace of Almighty God. And yet they stood absolutely amazed that God would dare to be just. Amazed at his justice. It's backwards. Jesus once again places his finger on the very root of the problem of those that surrounded him. The question is not, what did my neighbor do to merit this kind of wrath? The question is, knowing my own heart, why have I not received it? I've fallen far, far short of the holy law of God. And as a proven lawbreaker, apart from the grace of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ, I deserve it. I deserve his justice. I deserve that wrath. God would be perfectly just to give me the just deserts of my law breaking right now. This is so far from what we think in our flesh when tragedy strikes. When it seems that God has stepped down from his throne when chaos seems to rage in our lives. We think, why God? Why? We always mischaracterize the evil of sin and thus we presume grace. We even presume our own innocence and the impossible possibility of God's injustice. And in our attempts to answer the wrong questions, we miss the point of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ entirely. We tend to be far too rigorous and severe in our judgment of those around us and far too flattering when we consider our own misgivings, our own faults our own sin. And so we lash out thinking the worst of everyone else, not even bothering to start with the man or the woman in the mirror when it comes to consideration of sin. Beloved, again, I, I need to be clear. I'm not pointing my finger at the world. 
I'm talking to myself, and I'm talking to you. The acknowledgement of sin, the beauty of faith, trusting wholeheartedly in Jesus Christ and His righteousness by grace alone, begins with looking at yourself in the eyes of the law and rightly seeing the justice of Almighty God. That is, that you, it is you, that has been found wanting. And not spending your days wasting your time staring at the unworthiness of your neighbors. Because when you see it, beloved, I want to tell you, you will rightly begin to stand amazed at God's grace. You will rightly say, what? What love is this? I remember reading R.C. Sproul once. I don't remember the book. But he said that all of his years of teaching in a seminary, he could not possibly count up all of the time that his students approached him with the wrong question. He said he could never even begin to number the times that a student came to him and said, Dr. Sproul, why doesn't God save everybody? He said only one time could he recall having a student come to him with tears in his eyes, saying, Dr. Sproul, why did God save me? Beloved, does it hit home with you this morning? Obviously, my question is, where do you stand in this? Are you quick to judge every heart around you in this life, every person around you, even those sitting here this morning in the house of God worshiping with you? Do you judge them, but never yourself? Is your tendency to presume grace and stand amazed at justice? How dare God? Listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, trying to be the mind of God, that is a very toilsome and wearying labor. And in fact, it's a chasing after the wind if there ever has been one. The finite will never fully comprehend the infinite. You understand? Are you asking the right question? If you are, then be comforted this morning because Jesus Christ has given you the right answer. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. The wages of sin is death. And if you understand the answer, if you truly understand that you're not being called here to a work of repentance, then I trust that it's not terrifying to you. But in fact, it is truly the source of comfort for your soul this morning. That you can trust a gracious God to bring about all that he has promised, not because of you, but despite you. I said in the beginning of this sermon that one problem is that we ask the wrong question, and certainly I hope I've made that case. But there's another problem which flows from the first, and I've already alluded to it this morning. The second problem is that we have a real tendency to confuse grace and justice. And that leads to a blurring of the comfort that exists for the one who realizes what he's truly been given in Jesus Christ. We have a tendency to be amazed or blown away when we see justice, and to forget we, and, but forgetting and misunderstanding our sin, we come to expect grace. We're not surprised that God has redeemed us, but in fact, somewhere in the deep recesses of our hearts, we cannot imagine why he would not. 
But we are much more surprised when we see the wrath of God excited against his people. It's not new. Right? The the scriptural testimony is full of it. It's fallen human nature. You see it in the case of Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange fire before God, contrary to his perfect law, when they and when they received the just reward for transgressing the law of God, you know what happened? They were killed in an instant. The grumblers and the complainers had a difficult time holding their tongues. It's not fair. You see it with Uzzah when he, contrary to the law of God, reaches out his foul, sinful hand to steady the ark of God and his life was instantly taken from him and the people stood amazed at the justice of God. And they wondered how and why God could ever do such a thing. We do it today. We see the results of the fallen creation filled with fallen creatures and we are amazed To see the justice of God as people are given over to their sin. God is perfectly just when he gives to this world and all who dwell in it the just deserts of transgressing his covenant. But for some reason when we see it, we scratch our collective heads and we look heavenward and we ask why. We've come to expect God to always be universally merciful. We want to define it. And when he's not, we immediately allow our minds to consider things like the possibility of his injustice. It's a pretty simple step, really. We take for granted the grace of God. We expect him to always be, at least our concept, always be, our concept at least, always be merciful. And when it appears that he isn't, we immediately begin to think of things like our our human perception of fairness or the lack of it, and we begin in our hearts to charge Almighty God with what He's completely, entirely incapable of, injustice. How quickly we forget that simply by being born into this world in our fallen natures, we are guilty before God. Not to mention the sin that we all know pervades our own hearts and our own lives. How quickly we forget that with the smallest of transgressions, we have forfeited every right that we have towards any claim of the gift of eternal life through the law. One misstep, and you forfeit that right. How quickly we forget the fact that you and I, when we drew into our lungs this morning the very breath that allows for us to be here with the people of God, worshiping Almighty God today, is the direct result of grace, grace that we never have and never will deserve. There is not now nor ever has been any injustice with God. Beloved, do you understand that? Maybe you're asking yourself, Steve, how on earth is this supposed to be a comfort to me this morning? The fact that I'm a sinner, and as a sinner... That you, I have forfeited any right, any claim that I have on eternal life in the law of God. How could that possibly be a comfort? How is it a comfort for me to know that the only thing I deserve is hell? Death and hell, the wrath of God, and that God would be perfectly just to give it to me in any form. Beloved, that's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even though... 
You are just exactly like you are. Jesus Christ came down and he died for you. Even though we absolutely deserve only to have the wrath of God be poured out upon us, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, condescended towards us. He came in the humble frame of a man, in flesh, God incarnate. He lived his life among us, and by the power of his deity, he remained blameless in the eyes of the law. And you have to follow it. He willingly then and righteously went to the cross, bearing there upon his shoulders your sin and my sin. He died receiving upon himself the full punishment that was due us. The very wrath of God was poured out upon him for our sin. He stood in our place. He arose from the dead. He ascended into heaven where we're told in God's word. He now sits at the right hand of the Father acting as our advocate. He is daily interceding for you. He's sanctifying what you do and say. He's sanctifying your works and your prayers. And despite the fact, he he does it despite the fact that we deserve none of it. We did not earn our place in the favor of God. It was given to us through the very person and work of Jesus Christ and God graciously uniting us to him by faith. We do not have to trust in our abilities, which are really just inabilities at their best. We trust in the work of Jesus Christ, who alone is perfect, and through whom we now have confidence that indeed there is no condemnation for those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been given knowledge that nothing can ever take away the love of God given to us through Christ. Nothing. In him we are fully, completely equipped for both life and for death. In him we have life eternal. It is the gift of God and nothing will ever snatch us from his omnipotent hands. Beloved, as we wrap up yet another week and another month, and another year, as we begin another decade where the fallenness of humanity and the creation will be on full, inglorious display. The world is on record once again claiming answers to the wrong questions as they search in vain for comfort in a sin-stained world that has none to offer. By asking the wrong questions... They grope in the dark for a better way to merit more, to get more out of life year after year after year. But we are those who have not been left to grope about blindly in the dark. We have heard the glorious proclamation that Jesus Christ came to save wretches just like us from the wrath that we know we deserve. Beloved, in the coming years, it is my hope that we will not be those who blink at grace and who stand amazed at justice whenever we see it. I hope that we will live our days out forever absolutely amazed, in awe of the grace of Almighty God that saves sinners just like me, just like you, and that we of all people would show the world our joy, born out of rich eternal thankfulness for such an amazing salvation, as is given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So my closing question to you is, what is it that you stand amazed of this morning? 
If it's justice, I beg you to look a little closer at your own heart this morning in the mirror of God's holy law. Repent. Look to Jesus Christ in faith and stand amazed at the wonderful, matchless grace of God in the person and work of our Lord and Savior. Amen.